Today marks the beginning of our four-week series in the book of Jonah. You guessed it. If I wasn't preaching on Jonah, that'd be pretty bad this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, it's on page 774 and 775. That's the blue pew Bible that's under your chair or in the chair in front of you. I would encourage you to turn there with us. Before we dive into God's Word together, I have a few words of encouragement for us. First, as we work our way through Jonah, I would encourage you to have your Bible open in front of you if you can. If you have a physical copy, I'd encourage you to open that or a digital copy in your hand. This is a great discipline to have when you're listening to someone preach because preaching, after all, is a two-way street. The preacher seeks to faithfully deliver God's message from God's Word while the listener tests the message with God's Word and receives God's message from the preacher if, in fact, it is true. Second, I would also encourage you this week to read through Jonah in one sitting as often as you can. It's only four chapters, so it reads pretty quickly, but the more we press the entire book into our minds and hearts, the more prepared we will be when we gather to receive what the Lord would have for us from his word. So I would encourage you to read it as often as you can. Because here in this biographical narrative about an event that happened in Jonah's life lies the message of the book. This particular book is unique to all other Old Testament prophets in that way. There are four major prophets and 12 minor. Major and minor just refer to length, not their significance. Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets. They are all significant because they contain prophecies from Yahweh himself to his people Israel and the surrounding world. But what distinguishes Jonah is that contained in this record is not the prophecy he receives from God. If you read any other Old Testament prophet, you'll, you'll see the difference. But God has instead intended this historical account itself to function prophetically. That means the narrative delivers God's intended message. So if we wish to understand God's message here, we have to regularly take a step back and look at Jonah's narrative as a whole. What is it trying to teach us? Well, spoiler alert, it's not about the fish or a whale, as VeggieTales would have had us believe. It's not ultimately about Nineveh. It's not ultimately about the sailors or even Jonah. This is about Yahweh. Who is God? What is he like? And whose side is this Yahweh on anyway? These are all important questions that are answered in the book of Jonah, all questions that we need to answer. Who is this God? What is he like? And whose side is he on anyway? So as we begin our time, we need to understand it in its context. So therefore, I would like to invite you into the context of Jonah's lifetime. That is Jonah, the prophet of Israel, son of Amittai. If you have your Bible in front of you, turn back with me. Hold your, hold your finger in Jonah and turn back with me to 2 Kings 14. We're going to be in verses 23 and 27. That's on page 321 if you have a blue pew Bible. Verse 23, read with me as I read along quickly. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah... Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. 
and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Label Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath Hepper. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. As you'll notice, two kings are mentioned, Amaziah and Jeroboam II. Because back in 1 Kings 12, some 200 years before this, Israel actually split into two kingdoms. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was mentioned here, he was then the king of the north, king of Israel. And Rehoboam was the king of the south, king of Judah. We learn here in this text, 2 Kings, that Jeroboam, the son of Joash, that's Jeroboam II, because he was named after his predecessor, he continued in all the same wickedness that Jeroboam I did 200 years earlier. And unfortunately, every king in that northern kingdom followed in his footsteps. Pastor Chad will actually take us back to 1 Kings in a few weeks. But for our purposes here, it's important for us to note this, that during Jonah's lifetime, the northern kingdom of Israel was actively, presently living in unfaithfulness to their God, Yahweh, under the reign of Jeroboam II. They're living in unfaithfulness. But verse 25, it should come as a surprise. It was during this time of Israel's unfaithfulness, of Israel's disobedience, that God called Jonah to deliver a message of prosperity for the re-expansion of Israel's borders. God blesses them. And in verse 27, it goes so far as to say that God saw their affliction, not their wickedness, their affliction, and he saved them. What great news. What a great message. Jonah receives a prophetic word from Yahweh that the border would be restored, that Israel would therefore grow in strength in a time when they were declining. And I'm sure Jonah was ready and able to deliver a message like that to his home kingdom. But in our text this morning, Jonah receives an unexpected word from Yahweh, one that forces him to take immediate action. Which brings us to Jonah 1. Interestingly, and I think it aids to the story, the Hebrew stops at verse 16. So that's where we're going to stop. Read with me as I read Jonah 1 through, 1 through 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship 
and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If the entire book is about the one true God, Yahweh, who He is, what he's like, whose side he is on anyway, then it is important for us to see how Jonah 1 contributes to that. And I would say this. This is the main point of Jonah 1. God is sovereign and will use whatever means necessary to accomplish his purposes. God is sovereign and will use whatever means necessary to accomplish his purposes purposes. Overall, we'll we'll find that God has a purpose in all of this, choosing Jonah, calling him to Nineveh, the storm, the sailors. We actually find that everything we see in this text is in God's control, going exactly how he wants it to go, and he will accomplish exactly what he has set out to do. We'll walk through this text together in three points this morning. The first is this, Disobeying our sovereign God is punishable by death. Disobeying our sovereign God is punishable by death. In the first three verses of our text, we're already confused. A prophet of God received a direct command from God, and his immediate response is to flee. We are forced, as the reader, to ask the question, why? Why has he been so quick to disobey God. So to help us understand, imagine with me for a moment that you're Jonah. 
you wake up in your hometown, Gath Hepper, you, you strapped up your sandals for the morning, you brew your Hebrew coffee, whatever that might be, and you set off toward a temple of the Lord God, Adonai Elohim. You've received revelation from this God before. Great news, in fact, because Israel's borders were restored through this word. That means you're a true prophet and a popular one, too. Jeroboam II, the king that's reigning now, he's quite a wicked guy, but God still blessed the northern kingdom through him, as he should, right? I mean, we are the chosen people of God. But you keep hearing about these prophecies from your contemporaries, men by the names Amos and Hosea. Amos has been prophesying that your capital city, Samaria, was going to fall to the Assyrians if Israel did not repent of their wickedness. Lord, may it not be so. Please be gracious to your people. Hosea, he's been saying some graphic things, amounting to the same things that Amos has been saying. Israel has been unfaithful to Yahweh. And they're going to receive judgment at the hands of the Assyrians, but they won't if they repent. Lord, may it not be so. Bless your people, Israel. Assyria, after all, they're awful. They're known for their horrific war crimes. You've heard stories of horribly wicked things about them, the methods and the modes of torment that they used on men, women, and children when they conquered their nations. Truly awful, truly disgusting, so horrible that you couldn't even bear to imagine them, let alone hear your people might receive such a fate. God surely would not allow that. To his people? At the hands of the Assyrians? In essence, the message to Israel at the time was this. Repent of your wickedness or receive the judgment of God at the hands of the wicked Assyria. How could he? How could God do this? Doesn't he know how bad the Assyrians are? The capital of Assyria, none other than that great city, Nineveh. Well, today, Jonah, you've received quite the word. God wants you to go and call out against Nineveh. Maybe you're like me, and you read this, and you think, why would Jonah run? It seems like this is pretty favorable for Israel, right? If he's going to go and call out against Nineveh, isn't this good news that God knows what's going on over there? Well, his... His actions, Jonah's actions, reveal it must not sound like good news to Jonah. But why is this? Two reasons that I honestly have wrestled with through this week. I think the first one is plausible, but the second one is irrefutable. The first one, look at verse 2 with me, the word evil. Their evil has come up before me. Your Bible might have a footnote pointing this out. It can mean other things depending on the context. The word in Hebrew is ra'ah here. It's the same root word used. In chapter 4, verse 6, for example, look with me at chapter 4, verse 6. He says, The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his ra'ah, his discomfort. So was God commanding Jonah to call out against Nineveh because he was intending to judge them for evil? Or was God commanding Jonah to call out against Nineveh because he was intending to show them mercy in their discomfort? Plausible, based on the context. But either way you take it, I think this 
is irrefutable. God acknowledges seeing their wickedness, whether you take it that way, or God acknowledges seeing them in their distress. I think this is the same. God's desire was for his word to get to Nineveh, and Jonah was the means he would use to deliver it. If God sends his prophet to a wicked nation, either with a message of judgment or of mercy, we already know from other Old Testament scriptures, that of Elijah, for example, or of Elisha, that there is now an opportunity for the people of that nation to repent and turn to Yahweh. Thus, the sovereign God, regardless of the word Jonah heard, he intends to reveal his mercy to Nineveh. By the simple fact that they receive a message from him. He didn't have to call out against them. He could have simply judged them. Based on the events of the rest of the narrative, I believe the reason Jonah ran was because he misunderstood something about God. Jonah must have believed that Yahweh was only for Israel and no other nations. That Yahweh should only bless his people or forgive his people. That he should only stay in covenant with his people, Israel, and forsake those other nations outside the borders, especially some wicked nation like Assyria. How could God offer wicked people an opportunity to repent? After all they've done, the people they've murdered, the wickedness, they've walked in without any remorse whatsoever. Jonah? does not want to be a part of this. So Jonah flees. Have you ever thought things about, thought things like this about God? About another human being? How could God forgive them after everything they've done? Have you ever thought this about yourself? There's hope for people like you and me. Jonah disobeys God. He didn't arise and go. He arose and fled as far as he could in the opposite direction. And it's interesting to watch him as he goes. He's headed for Tarshish. Say that five times fast. It's not 100% clear if this was a city, but what was clear is that it represents the farthest known place you could go across the sea to the west at the time. Jonah, you can see it, wants to go as far west as one could go, out to sea, away from the Lord's presence. And God's presence was where his word was present the temple, and amongst his people. So Jonah, watch him. He goes down to Joppa. Joppa was a port city where there were most likely little to no Israelites and therefore little to no interference from Yahweh, or so he thinks. He pays to go aboard a trading boat where there definitely weren't any Israelites and therefore no interference from Yahweh whatsoever, or so he thinks. He goes down into the ship, down into the inner part of the ship, and is fast asleep. Disobedience has a way of hardening one's heart. Jonah doesn't just leave the presence of the Lord physically. He's already checked out spiritually, unrepentant, stubbornly set in his way. He doesn't want anything to do with Yahweh, and definitely nothing to do with taking Yahweh's word to Nineveh. Was Jonah right to disobey God? Is there ever a time that it's right to disobey God? God, after all, wanted him to go to Nineveh, and there was a chance that God might have forgiven them. 
Was he right to run? That's the question the Israelites who heard this account would have to answer themselves. Was Jonah justified in his disobeying God's word to go to the wicked Ninevites? The answer is no. Disobeying our sovereign God, no matter what he commands, is punishable by death. I want us to recognize the severity of disobedience here. Jonah disobeyed God, and now his life is at stake. The Lord allowed his prophets to speak back, to counter-argue. He allowed them to talk back to him, to show that they had real emotions. Think about Moses when God said, you're going to speak to Pharaoh, and he says, I can't speak, probably stuttering. After the Lord said he would already use him. Or think of Abram when Abram laughed at God when God promised he would give him a child. The Lord allows that. The Lord knows that we're humans with emotions. He understands we question things. But Jonah doesn't even ask. He doesn't want to know how this could be because he just doesn't want to believe it should be. He's set in his ways. So what happens? Yahweh sends a storm that threatens his life and the lives of everybody on the boat. We might even feel the need to ask questions like, is Yahweh right to demand Jonah's life after one act of disobedience? We might even be on the other side thinking, is Yahweh right to threaten the innocent lives of the mariners on the ship who have nothing to do with it? Well, here is where we learn something about God, church. And we learn it through Jonah and the mariners. There are no innocent lives on the ship. The Israelites who heard this account would have immediately recognized the crux. These pagans deserved this storm. But did Jonah, the prophet of God? The truth of the matter was that every single person on that boat was living in rejection to the one true God. We know that Jonah was rejecting God because he was disobeying God. But look at verse 5. <clears throat> Excuse me. The mariners were afraid. But what did they do when they were afraid? Each cried out to his God. The mariners were pagans, polytheists, evidenced by the fact that they called out to however many gods they could call out to just to try to get this thing to stop. And then last minute, they go to Jonah in desperation and ask him to do the same thing. Everybody in this moment was walking in disobedience to Yahweh, not calling on him as God alone, not worshiping him alone. Everyone in this moment was guilty of sinning against the sovereign God in this moment, and sin's penalty is death. They were going to die. Let me ask you this. Do you view disobeying God as that big of a deal? Why would God come down so hard on us anyway? Couldn't he cut us some slack? I mean, even for Jonah. Couldn't he have cut Jonah some slack? It was really hard. He was going through something difficult. And the mariners, I mean, couldn't God see they were desperate? They were afraid. It's important for us to recognize first in this text, sin, all of it, all sin, is an eternally 
punishable offense. Now hear me, not because of the heinousness of the sin per se, but because of the holiness of our God. When we sin against the holy sovereign, we deserve a holy judgment. And where there is sin, God is the righteous judge. And the just penalty for sin against the sovereign holy God is death, no matter how big or how small of a matter we think that it is. From the whitest lie to the acts of murders of millions of lives, it is a sin first and foremost against God. How do you view sin? How do you view disobedience to God? Is it this big of a deal? Is it life demanding? Do you believe sin against God deserves death? Maybe you don't think sin's that big of a deal. If you don't think sin is this big of a deal, then, friend, you aren't thinking about sin the way the sovereign God thinks about sin, which puts you in a tough spot. Because even though you don't believe it, you don't think it's that heinous, that doesn't make it any less true. So I would encourage you to reconsider and Believe God's word in spite of what you want to believe, what you want to feel you ought to believe. Believe God's word. Maybe, on the other hand, you do see how sin is a big deal to this holy God. Well, now we have a problem. We ought to agree with the sovereign God that sin is a punishable offense and death is its penalty, but that too puts us in a tough spot. Because if we believe sin's penalty is death then we must also believe that we deserve to die. Because we've all sinned against this one sovereign God. It doesn't matter the heinousness of the sin because it is punishable. And one act of unrighteousness before a holy God earns death. So what do we do? What can we do? What can we do to escape death that is coming? Is there hope for us? Well, that brings us to the second point. Faith in our sovereign God promises deliverance. Faith in our sovereign God promises deliverance. By verse 6, you realize Jonah's fast asleep in the bottom of the boat while there's a huge storm going on outside. It's almost comical. Storm, sleep, storm, sleep, storm, sleep. It's like a bad sitcom. How could this man be sleeping? You can feel the captain's emotions when he interrupts Jonah's descent to death by storming into the hole himself in desperation. What do you mean, you sleeper? Equivalent of saying, how could you sleep at a time like this? The next comments reveal the captain's heart. Listen for the fear. Listen for the desperation. Listen for the willingness to do whatever it takes to stop what he perceives as a judgment from the gods. Because at the time, people believed calamities that happened happened as a result of sinning against some deity. So you had to appease the deity to relent the calamity. So here he perceives there's a judgment from the gods happening. And you can also see his surprise that Jonah wouldn't be doing the same thing. Verse 6, arise, get up, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Notice what happened though. Jonah was not praying. These pagans were praying. Jonah was asleep. 
But these pagans were praying with everything that they could. Side note, one of the most convicting things I've ever felt was when I was talking to a Muslim friend of mine. And I just asked him how often he prayed. I knew how often he prayed, but I just asked. And he proceeded to tell me how early he got up, how many times he prayed. No excuses. And it was convicting because in that moment I recognized a devoted Muslim who is convinced Allah hears his prayers. He is devoted to a lifeless deity, calling out all day long, hoping that he will hear him. But I struggle to pray sometimes for five minutes to the living God who has an ear for me. These pagans have been crying out, desperate for help. So in the last ditch effort, they wake up the sleeping guy and they cast lots to determine whose fault this was. Because like I said, the common understanding was that they were experiencing this as a result of judgment from some deity that they had offended. So right now, the wind was horrific. The seas were treacherous. Their thought was that some, somebody's God needed appeasing. So they, they wanted and they needed to know who needed to pay up. Lots were probably some form of dice. Some commentators say they're like coins. One side was white, one side was black. So whoever used them flipped them and something like white, white meant yes. Black, black meant no. White, black went oops, try again. But see this. They cast lots. They had to go person by person, if that's how they did it. Casting the lot. And person after person, black, black. Nope, nope, nope. Until all of a sudden, they get to this passenger. Yes, he's the one. The storm was in God's hands. The lots were in his hands. And now Jonah is in the hands of these mariners. Look at verse 8 with me. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? The mere fact that these men had to ask all these questions reveals the reality of Jonah's silence. He knows what's happening. He said nothing. He is letting all of these guys figure it out on their own. So they have to come to him, wake him up, cast lots, find out that it's him, and they have to ask him, what's your occupation? One commentator says, until they know his identity, they can hardly expect to know which God he's offended and how. If he were a priest or a prophet or an executioner or an idol maker or any one of the many other religiously sensitive occupations, part of the answer might already be realized. So they rapid fire these questions at this guy, this prophet of Yahweh. And this prophet finally speaks up. I'm a Hebrew. Okay, that answers the back half of the questions, but what God do you serve? I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. That is to say the most high God, the God of gods, who made the sea and the dry land. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. It's his fault. What would your response be to this admission? If Jonah, if finally, after all this, you found out it was Jonah, what would you do? Would you be mad? Would you say, boy, I ought to show him a piece of my mind? Well, don't forget that you are literally moments from dying yourself. So the sailors, their first concern is not giving this man what he deserves. They ask how they can fix it, not how Jonah can fix it. They have to drag it out of him. Verse 11, what shall we do to you? 
that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. You feel the drama growing, waves slamming against the ship. They couldn't stand up straight. They had to brace themselves, wipe the water from their eyes, yell at the top of their lungs just to hear each other amidst all the lightning and thunder. Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. What do the men do after they get the answer they've been fishing for? They dig in. These pagans fight to battle against the storm and make it back to safety. They didn't want him to die. The pagans sought to show mercy while the prophet of Yahweh only expected judgment. They tried, but they came to the end of themselves. And at the very end, after all they'd tried, they call out in faith, hoping that this Yahweh, the God of heaven, of the sea and dry land, would see their efforts at sparing Jonah's life and spare theirs. Because they knew now that Yahweh was not going to let Jonah get away. Verse 14, they say, For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. By faith in this Yahweh, they pick up Jonah, they hurl him into the sea. You feel the dramatic pause. What's going to happen? Are the pagans going to die? Is it going to work? They were at the mercy of God. And the sea calms. God spared them. And not only did he spare their lives physically, but the Lord saved them spiritually. Verse 16. They couldn't have offered a sacrifice right there on the boat. They had no materials. They already threw it all in the ocean. This had to be after the fact, like a narrative telling a story. A long enough time for them to reconsider their newfound faith. They had enough time to reconsider it. What did God do? Eh. But they thought about it. Their lives were no longer in danger. They probably made, it their, made their way back to their port. They unloaded anything they may have still had. But then they had to make a decision. Do we continue living our lives how we've been living it? Or do we take a trip to a temple of Yahweh and seek out what a proper sacrifice was to this new God? What vows needed to be made to him to obey him? And that's what they did. Because they believed Yahweh. So taking a step back, what just happened? Any Israelite hearing this story would see three obvious things that we need to see. These are them. First, the most shocking, these pagan idolaters called out to the one true God. And Yahweh spared them from death, even a death they deserved. And they feared him. The second, the most surprising, the pagan's response to God proved that if Jonah himself, the reason for the calamity, would have called out to God in repentance, the storm would have stopped and they all would have been saved. But third, most sobering, the prophet of God chose rather to die than to repent of his disobedience. And in his indifference on the ship, he showed little regard for the lives of everybody on board. 
He knew he should die. But he didn't think they should survive. The lesson comes when we look at the pagans' response and the prophets' response. With their limited knowledge, the pagan knew they needed to call out to some god to stop the storm. Jonah knew the god who made the sea, but he didn't ask. The pagans wanted to right the wrong committed. Jonah wasn't willing to admit he was wrong. The pagans cared about Jonah's life. Jonah had no regard for theirs or for his. The pagans called out in desperation to Yahweh, knowing and hoping that he alone now had the power to save them. Jonah admitted his involvement, but resolved to take Yahweh's punishment rather than call out for mercy. The pagans feared the Lord exceedingly and they obeyed. Jonah wants nothing to do with the sovereign God who shows mercy to the wicked to the point where he'd be willing to disobey unto death, saying, I'm the reason for this calamity. In essence, kill me. I deserve it. Through actions of the prophet and of the pagans, we learn something beautiful about our sovereign God. We learn that sinning against him is punishable by death. But we learn that he will deliver the repentant from a deserved death when they turn to him in faith. No matter who they are or what they've done. You see, the reality is that we have all sinned against the holy God and how we think about that sin reveals itself in our willingness to either call out to God for help or harden our hearts against him. But regardless of your willingness or unwillingness to do so, our sin deserves death and we cannot deliver ourselves. Jonah and the pagans could not deliver themselves from the storm. They could not deliver themselves from death. They had to fully and finally rely on the mercy of God to do so. Which brings us to the final point. Our sovereign God is a pursuing God. Our sovereign God is a pursuing God. Did you notice that God was in pursuit the entire time? Even before he gave this word to Jonah. From the onset of verse 1, we see God pursuing Nineveh. We see God pursuing Jonah. We see God pursuing the mariners. And this was not a pursuit to destroy. We see God's heart in that this has been a pursuit all for the sake of showing his mercy. The problem of chapter one is not that the prophet of God dies under God's judgment. The problem of chapter one is why did Jonah not hear God's word and believe that it was true, that God is ready and able to show mercy to the merciless, grace to the undeserving. He didn't believe it for Nineveh. He didn't believe it for the sailors and he didn't believe it for himself. Marvel at the goodness of our sovereign God and just how far he was willing to go to show mercy to the undeserving in this text. Think about it. Jonah was most likely in the northern kingdom somewhere when he received this revelation, which means he had to go a ways to get to Joppa, which was on the coast of the southern kingdom. 
It had to have taken him some time, enough time to think, what am I doing? To reconsider, to recognize I'm, I'm actively disobeying the word of the Lord. I should stop. I should think about what I'm doing. I should do what he says. But Jonah keeps going. Now see this. Step after step. Every step on dry land. He thought he took away from God's presence. The God who made that dry land was present. Holding that ground under his feet. When he had every right to open it right up and swallow him. But he didn't. Because in Jonah's fleeing, God was pursuing him. And not only was he pursuing him, he was pursuing someone else. Jonah went to this particular city, Joppa. He could have went anywhere, but he went to this particular city, Joppa. And he came to this particular boat. He even paid to get on that boat. He got on it, and he found himself with this particular group of mariners, non-Israelite men, but very religious. And he found himself amidst people who were aware of God's working in the world. They were trading and shipping, living life, trying to make a living. But what they didn't know is that they were being pursued by the living God. The one and only creator of the seas and dry land, the God of heaven. And when they encountered him, their lives in the beautiful sovereign province of God, in that particular moment in time, would be changed forever because the same God they encountered out at sea who was being true to his name the holy and righteous judge and bringing judgment onto the disobedient prophet he is the same God at the same time who is calling these mariners in mercy to make a decision obey or flee and they chose to obey in the moment they recognized that meant throwing a man They didn't know over an edge into a grave they did not dig, but they understood something that Jonah did not. This God will accomplish his purposes. And he is right and he is good to do so. God's wrath and justice on full display in the midst of a raging sea that threatened to bring everyone on board down because they were all walking in disobedience to Yahweh and Yahweh has every right to exact every penalty for sin against his holy name. But at the same time we learn, Yahweh has every right to extend his mercy and his grace to whomever he wants. Before the thunder of his judgment, we can see the flashing lightning of his mercy. To the sailors, God's message was clear. Look at what happens when you disobey me. This man will receive his due penalty. Do not do what he has done. Turn to me and I will deliver you. To Jonah, the raging sea served as God's final, not his first, his final gracious call to repent or face certain death. Jonah could have confessed his wrong. He could have called out to God there on the boat. That's what the sailors did. He could have vowed to the Lord then and there, and the Lord would have delivered him because, interestingly, the sailors teach us the Lord would have relented of the disaster for him. God was pursuing Jonah. He was pursuing the mariners because 
God desires to show his mercy. And do you know that God is in pursuit of the whole world like this? Did you know that that is why the Son of God took on flesh? Did you know that God so loved the world, so desired to show His mercy, that He sent His only Son into the world, the Lord Jesus, who, in eternity past, agreed within the Godhead that He would arise from His throne And descend into this desperate world in pursuit of the poor, the needy, the lost, the sick, and the hurting. All of us. Dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to deliver ourselves, he became our deliverer. Our sinlessly perfect savior, never once disobeying God, committing no punishable offenses against our sovereign God, yet he is the one who went to the cross where he took on all of our sins so that we could be set free by faith in him. It is by a prayer of faith in this sovereign God become flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can finally be delivered from sin's penalty, death, and have eternal life with him. We can be spared from the disaster that is eternal death in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You are here today. Think about that. You're here, sitting in this room. Do you think that's by accident? That means God's message has come to your ears. And if it's in your ears, you know for a fact God is pursuing you right now in this moment. He's calling you right now in this moment to make a decision. If you're a guest with us, why are you here this morning? You're here because God put you here. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you are here this morning because, friend, again, God is pursuing you. Turn to him in faith. He alone can deliver you. Think of the great links that God has gone to get you here today. Every stage in your life. From the moment that you were born, to the decision that you made for school, to the decision whether or not to go to college, to the job that you took, the place that you decided to live, the moving from place to place, the trauma that you experienced, the difficulties, the problems, the thoughts, the feelings, all to the point when you decided this morning, I'm going to go to church. Don't harden your heart to God's word like Jonah. Call out to God like the mariners. Maybe you've been out of church for a long time. Maybe you know your relationship with God isn't where it needs to be. Well, friend, take the first step. Your greatest need in this moment today is deliverance. Deliverance, salvation from the sin in your heart that is there that we all have. That if we're honest with ourselves, we've tried to clean it up, but no matter how hard we scrub, it doesn't. It doesn't get any lighter than it was. It gets darker day by day. No matter how hard we try, no matter how good we've tried to be, we cannot get on God's good side. We can't make it up. Maybe like Jonah, you're running from God. Friend, you can't run. Our God is a pursuing God. And God knows you can't deliver yourself. And God loves you and he sent Jesus for you. Turn to Christ in faith. The real journey, 
not one that leads down to death, the one that leads up to life, begins with the prayer of faith in the one true God, in his son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters at Redeemer, or if you're here this morning visiting with us, you're a Christian, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for your sin, that he rose again from the grave on the third day, that he conquered sin and death for you and for me. If you believe that, revel in how far God went to pursue you. Do you remember? Do you remember how lost you were? Do you remember how far gone you were? Remember when he called your name. I deserve death, God, but you paid it all at the cross for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. Remember how far God came to save you and praise God for it this morning and learn Jonah's lesson. God is for you, but he's not only for you. God desires to show mercy to your lost neighbors, to your coworkers, your friends, your siblings, your parents, everyone around you who does not know him. And guess what? You have his message. Will your heart swell in compassion like the living God for the lost, like the Lord Jesus' heart when he came for us? And will that cause you to open your mouth and speak the truth in love to them, or will you harden your heart to them? Pray and ask God to soften your heart if that's you. Ask him to use you as the means to accomplish his pursuit of the people around you in your life. You're not in their life for no reason. You're in their life because God put you in their life to be in their life, a gospel light, a message of salvation for them. Ask God for the boldness, the confidence to work out your faith by obedience to his call and to make his name known. Not to simply stand and let them draw it out of you, drag it out of you. Why are you happy all the time? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you go to church? But to stand in gospel strength. To have the heart not to just say, I'm a Christian, I fear the living God. But to have a heart to proclaim the goodness of God. I've been set free by the Lord Jesus from all of my sin, all of my shame. He's cleansed me, he's made me new. He's given me new life, he can give you new life. Let me share that with you. Let me share with you what God can do for you. He changes lives and he can change yours too. My greatest need has always been and will ever be the grace of God. But guess what? God gives it for free and you can have it by faith too. Ask God for that message on your lips. Ask God for a heart that swells with compassion for people who are dying right next door to you that you have the message you can deliver to them. Church, Jonah received a word from God to deliver a merciful message to a wicked people and he ran. We have God's ultimate word fully revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, once for all delivered to the saints, a message of salvation in Christ alone by faith alone, a message that has the power itself, within itself, to save even the worst of sinners because it's a message both given and accomplished by God himself. Don't flee from it. The simple gospel that saved you is the same simple gospel that God uses to pursue and save the nations. Who is this God? What is he like? Whose side is he on? He is sovereign, merciful, and gracious. The only God of the world. And he desires to show his mercy to his world. 
the world he created, the world that he entered into, that he died for and he rose. Praise be to God. Let's pray.